I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. We never initiate any violence upon anyone, but if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look for that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us. But we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, a show where we offer reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes, and I'm riding solo without my co-host, Taylor Gray, for a few bonus episodes. But this week, I'm joined by my friend, Cyril Chavez, who is joining me all the way from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where he serves as campus minister at Howard University through Reform University Fellowship. Cyril is married to Janelle, and they have three children. Am I correct, Cyril? Yep. What's good, bro? What's up, man? It's um, good to be here. Honored to be on the Make It Plain mic. Yeah, man. I'm glad to have you, bro. I'm glad to have you. Before we dive into this episode, we need you to rate rate us on Apple Podcasts. Our goal is to have 300 total ratings. And at the time of the recording, I think we have about 130. So we have 170. Look at that math off the top of the dome. Come on. 170 more ratings to go. I know y'all are out there. I know y'all are listening. We appreciate it. Recently, I did a few guest episodes on several different podcasts, and Cyril had me on his podcast to talk a little bit about. We we briefly mentioned Malcolm X. I think did we? How much did we talk about Malcolm X? I can't remember. Yeah, a little bit, maybe. Yeah, it was mainly on using your power, and we talked about Francis Grimke. Yeah, yeah dope episode. Yeah, man, we enjoyed having you on there. Absolutely, man. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, bro. Yeah, so it's called Africana Mana. It's basically letting love that um, name, man. Appreciate it. It's letting old friends speak in the new times. So it's really similar to make it plain, like looking at old friends, ancestors, and seeing the wisdom that they can offer us in the here and now for the current issues we're facing. So each week we take a Christian African ancestor, we look at their life and related to a topic. So what you did, the topic was using your power. And then the Christian African ancestor we looked at was Francis Grimke. Talk a little bit about the work that you're doing um, through campus ministry with RUF at Howard. And there's a lot of things probably that, that might need to be explained to our audience. So first of all, what is RUF? And then talk about the work that you guys are doing at Howard University and why that is significant. Yeah, so RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It's the official campus ministry of the PCA, our denomination. What's the PCA? The PCA stands for Presbyterian Church in America. So really, we're trying to advance the ball down the field when it comes to Black-focused ministries and Black contexts. And so it's an RUF on an HBCU, Historically Black College University. So we're really just trying to share the good news. Really, we believe in a big God who created us with a glorious purpose, but we've all fallen short. And we believe that students were created for a meaningful relationship with God and meaningful relationships with each other. And we believe that Jesus is the way that those are restored. We are looking to create a student group that is about the truth and feels like family and restores students' relationships with God and each other. 
So we, you know, we have Bible studies, we have social events. We just really try and connect with students and see them set on, on a trajectory to follow Jesus for a lifetime as they're on the college campus. That's what's up, man. Cyril, what was your impression of Malcolm X growing up and how has your opinion of him evolved over the years? Man, I knew of Malcolm X through secondary sources. And when I knew we were going to do this episode, I said, man, let me go on and read the autobiography. And so I read it and man, I feel like so many light bulbs were going off, especially in his childhood, the ways you see him being shaped and formed. Mm -hmm. I feel like all of who he became as a man started in different moments and like, like the finished product, the meal or the cake of who he was as a man was made up of ingredients that were thrown in the oven or the cooking bowl, so to speak, when he was a child. And one of the big things I was surprised by was he grew up around a lot of white folks. Mm-hmm. Like he yep. went to an all white school. He was in a, was it called a, a reform school? What did he call it? Yeah. Reform school. And so he, yeah, he had, he was around a lot of white folks and he was very smart. He was at the top of his class as far as intelligence and grades and such. So I was like, this makes so much sense. Like I, I, I oftentimes think, I was like, I think the people who are most fired up about racism and be the most cautious and maybe you can even say cynical about black folks being in overwhelmingly majority white spaces is those people who have been there, mm-hmm. you know? And so I was like, yeah, I can see why he's so fired up. He's experienced yep. a lot of it firsthand. Yep. With the death of his father with watching the social services really try and, you know, do their work in the home, but he was really skeptical of it. And just, yeah, being in an all white space, even further solidified his caution and really his, his beliefs about, or he's really more of a pessimist as far as black white relations. Let's take a look at, at this episode's quote. Malcolm says this in his autobiography. This comes from chapter two, which is called mascot. What I am trying to say is that it just never dawned upon them that I could understand that I wasn't a pet, but a human being. They didn't give me credit for having the same sensitivity, intellect, and understanding that they would have been ready and willing to recognize in a white boy in my position. But it has historically been the case with white people and their regard for black people, that even though we might be with them, we weren't considered of them. All right, so I want to give some context for this particular quote. This is very interesting. You just mentioned at this time he had been sent to a reform school, Cyril, and he is staying with a a, a white couple. He says Mrs. Swirling and her husband, Mr. Swirling, were good people. He said that they accepted him to some extent, and he has all these like minor things where he knows like they smell different than us, right? So this is this mm-hmm. young black boy who had really only been around white people when his mom would take them to these seven-day Adventist country meetings. But beyond that, he had never really spent a whole lot of time around uh, white people at this point. And I think he was around 14 or 15 Mm -hmm. when he went to live with this couple. It's funny. Can I say something right here? I was laughing a little bit. He said on page 27, I notice again how white people smell different from us and how their food tasted different, not seasoned like Negro cooking. So this has been a thing (laughs) for a while, right? This is nothing new. And this is where he kind of transitions. And of course, this is Malcolm at an older age, like reflecting on his life as a child. But he says, they always liked my attitude. And it was either their liking for me that I soon became accepted by them as a mascot, I now know 
Mm. Right. This is the context of everything that he's saying is that he's coming to this realization that they don't see him as a person, but they see him more so as a mascot or as a pet. And he goes on to say, he says, they would talk about anything and everything with me standing right there, hearing them the same way you would talk freely in front of a pet canary. Mm. They would even talk about me or about as though I wasn't there as if. I wouldn't understand what the word meant. They would use this word a hundred times a day. And he says, I suppose in their own minds, they meant no harm. In fact, they probably meant well. It was the same with the cook Lucille and her husband, Dwayne. And then he says, I remember one day, Mr. Swirling, as nice as he was, came in from Langsing, where he had been through the Negro section and said to Mrs. Swirling, right in front of me, I just can't see how those can be so happy and be so poor. He talked about how they lived in shacks, but had those big shining cars out front. And Mrs. Swirling said, me standing right there, is just that way. He says, that scene will always stay with me. Now, leading mm-hmm. up to that quote, a local politician came to visit them one day. And Malcolm says one of their favorite parlor to- to- topics was talking about. And he says one of them was the judge who was in charge of me in Langsing. He was a close friend of the Swirlings. Mm-hmm. He would ask about me when he came. They would call me in and he would look me up and down his expression of proving like he was examining a fine coat or a pedigree pup. I knew they must have told him how I acted and how I worked. And this is where we get to our quote today. I, so, so that's just some context. Cyril, what are your thoughts on this quote? First of all, I feel like I I laugh at this kind of stuff. It's like, you know, laugh at my pain. It is both horrendous and hilarious. The way he's explaining it, it really is absurd. And I think that's what humor is. It points out the absurdities of life. It's like they're talking about me and I'm right here. And they're talking about me in such a way that is disrespectful and condescending. Yet, you know, they're very well intentioned. And like you said, he calls them good people. And so... Mm -hmm. It's just hilarious how someone can be so well-intentioned and have, um, yeah, all of the best sentiments towards somebody and yet still fail so epically to actually act on those intentions. And it just shows how deep kind of racism is and how it's in the culture and the atmosphere that people breathe to the point where racism is at play, even when you're not intentionally trying to be racist. So I think that's the first thing that pops in my head. When white people, if they're called racist or if it's implied that they're racist, they always go to their intentions. They didn't mean anything. I, I love black people, right? And right. they don't recognize that the way that racism works, the way that power works, is that your intentions ultimately don't matter in this moment mm-hmm. if your actions are still corrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Your intentions might be, you, you might mean well, but you can mean well and still harm somebody. Right. Right. If you try to, if you try to help somebody who essentially does not want your help, does not need your help, or if you're helping them in the foundation from which you're helping them is faulty. It's, it's almost like somebody saying, Hey, this person needs surgery. And you're saying, man, surgery is expensive. I'm going to operate on you at home. I think I can help you. Well, if you don't have the tools, 
right? And the knowledge and the training to be able to help that person, ultimately, you're going to do more harm to that person than good. And mm. you can't say when you're in the court of law because you've killed that person on your like homemade opera room table that I meant well, I was trying to help. That means absolutely nothing. Per- perhaps that gets you manslaughter and not third degree. The reality is that if you don't have the basis, if you don't have a foundation, if you don't have the training, if you don't have the insight. And the only way that you can get that is through humility. Yeah. Yeah. Humility is key. I mean, when you think about a lot of the issues with race relations in our country, uh, or if you just take race out of it and think about how power works, you realize that what is lacking there usually is humility an unwillingness to learn, an unwillingness to consider others more important than yourself. Yeah, I think all that's good. And I think, and what's funny is that you almost feel a sense of compassion or pity for the swirlings because when you look at them, you're like, I don't think they know, like they don't know what they don't know. You know what I mean? Like they're just white folks. They grew up around all, from, from what we could tell, they grew up around all white folks, have been around all white folks in this kind of racist culture. And they're trying the best they can, but they just, <laughs> they're still kind of, <laughs> you know, hearing this, this young black boy that they're caring for. And he's experiencing things that will always stick with him about white black relations, so to speak. And so it's almost like, man, they're trying so hard, <laughs> but still stumbling. So I think if anything, like, you know, it's better than folks who aren't trying, but I agree with you. They're still failing here to, dignify honor and treat malcolm as a human as a person and i think what he says as when he says they saw me as a pet i think that's such a good like a a provocative image because of course we love our pets right we'll bring our pets places we'll cry and we'll grieve if they die we want to see them do well we want to see our pets happy but at the end of the day that animal is an animal you know, is not a human, is not on the same level. And so I think in Malcolm's um, experience that he was like, hey, they were nice. They were kind. They wanted to see me happy. They didn't want to see me harmed. But at the end of the day, their posture towards me was still of someone who was lesser and who wasn't on the same level as them. And it really makes me think a lot about, I start to reflect on our culture today. Like, where do we see that today? You know, Malcolm does the same thing later on. He says, um, he does, he does that. He looks back at his childhood and then he talks about his present. He says, this is the sort of kindly condescension, condescension which I try to clarify today to these integration-hungry Negroes about their quote-unquote liberal white friends, these quote-unquote good white people, most of them anyway. Because I don't care how nice one is to you. The thing you must always remember is that almost never does he really see you as he sees himself, as he sees his own kind. He may stand with you through thin but not thick. When the chips are down, you'll find that as fixed in him as his bone structure is, his sometimes some subconscious conviction that he's better than anybody black. And so I was just like, do we see that today in 2022? Like, what are places Ooh. where white and black folks are together, but there's still this condescension? There's still this view of like, hey, we want to help. We want to partner. But there's still this thing like, I don't think they they see us or our causes or our culture as on the same level, you know? Yeah. Or our competence. Mm -hmm. Even 
Um, and again, this is a power issue, hands down, and power manifests itself in so many different ways, whether that's true, how we treat anybody who has less power than us, how we treat children, how we treat women, how we treat any marginalized group in our society, anyone who has less access. And so in this particular case with Malcolm, he's experiencing it specifically because of the color of his skin. Notice what Malcolm says in this quote, and you even alluded to it because its theme is constant throughout his autobiography. He says, they didn't give me credit for having the same sensitivity, intellect, and understanding they would have been ready and willing to recognize any white boy in my position. Why is this the case? Because when they look at a white boy in his position, they're looking at somebody who was once them. And so we let the craziest things divide us, whether that's gender, whether that is ethnicity, and you essentially take one of those factors and you change them. And all of a sudden there's a inability, right? To sympathize with the person that you're looking at because they're black. Uh, be mm. or because it's a woman. Instead of saying, mm -hmm. this person is a human being made in the image of God, and if I was in their position, I would feel horrible. I would mm. feel minimized. I would feel humiliated, right, if I was in their position. And so, again, it's this inability to look at another person and say, we're the same person, and so I can understand how you would feel if, or how I, I can understand how you feel being in that position. And this is why I think, you know, I think it, it was repeated for so long for over, over time, but the golden rule is so important that you want to be treated. When you look at that text, Jesus literally says, this sums up all the laws and the prophets in one sentence. And I don't know if we've really taken time to consider the magnitude of that one sentence when like the Lord of this universe is saying, I'm going to give you the old Testament in a sentence, the message of the law and the prophets. If you do this, you, you, you'll understand, you'll treat other people the way that you want to be treated. And then through all of Malcolm's life, as he's interacting with all of these white people who have more power than him, who have more access to opportunity than him, the if they had done one thing, one thing, they simply treated black people the way that they wanted to be treated. We would not have this problem in America that we constantly are still talking about 50, 100 years, 200 years later, racism. Yeah, yeah. And that's really why we need Jesus, you know, why we really need God to transform us is because we're so twisted that, you know, not only, yeah, I like that connection you made. I feel like there's two sides of it. Like we, so when someone looks different than us, we don't treat them how we would like to be treated because we don't see ourselves in them. So it's really like, we're really not even two sides of it. It's like a selfishness is thrown in there. Mm -hmm. I will only treat others as I want to be treated if I see myself in them. And really that's even like, you, you think about the guy who asked Jesus when Jesus was talking about the different commandments that folks should do. And someone says, well, who is my neighbor? You know, trying to basically wiggle out of the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Exactly. He's basically trying to say like, essentially like I only want to love people who are like me. I only want to love people who look like me or similar to me. And Jesus flips it. He jars the person by making 
the Samaritan, the hero of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Essentially, mm-hmm. like the Samaritan is the one who showed neighbor love. And the whole moral of the story is that you love people, period. Like no matter what they look like, no matter who they are. And so, yeah, I, I, we, we really need the transforming power of Jesus to actually love our neighbor as ourselves selflessly in a way that's not centered on ourselves because when we only love people who look like us that golden rule is like we we throw selfishness in it you know yeah and really like jesus did that he selflessly loved us like he died for us he became a human for us he did all of these things for us he selflessly he emptied himself philippians 2 says and so how are we going to receive that power and use that power that jesus offers to empty ourselves to like you just mentioned consider others as more significant than ourselves yeah yeah so yeah i just yeah just add into what you already said that's good you you know malcolm talks about this level of sensitivity intellect and understanding and what i want to ask is like what level of sensitivity intellect and understanding was assumed to belong to little black boys at that time yeah Really, I mean, you really see that these folks assume that there is very little sensitivity or intellect in little black boys. And even when they're talking about like, man, I don't understand how they can be, what did you say, so poor and so happy? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost there's this thing of like, oh, they're just not sharp enough to know that they're actually miserable, that they're actually poor. If they were smarter, they realize that they were poor and they wouldn't be as happy, you know? So yeah, they assume there's very little sensitivity or intellect or understanding, especially if they're talking about Malcolm in front of him in condescending ways. They're like, it's almost like with little kids, you know, little kids who don't understand English, you, you talk about anything in front of them because you assume they don't understand. It seems like that's what's happening right here with, with Malcolm. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that they're not just talking about, they're talking about black people like they're not, like there's not a black boy in the room. And even if he understands, they're assuming, even if let's just say that they assume that his sensitivities, that his, that the intellect is there. Cause I think at that point they would have said that Malcolm was a bright kid. Oh, gotcha. Uh, yeah. And so let's yeah. just say that intellect and understanding, right. Were assumed like the sensitivity aspect of it. The fact that they are talking about black people in front of this black boy, almost as if it's so true that he would just, agree to yeah. agree with them yeah like yeah. we all know this about like, black people. like it's just plain truth like yeah, yeah. like it's just a fact you and know? this and this is, goes back to that point of humility not being willing to ask hey malcolm like x y and z like questions like just ask him questions instead of making a statement because this is one of the things i have noticed that is just prevalent in white culture this is not all white people but culturally, this is a cultural problem that I've observed in white culture is there, there is an audacity to make statements about minority groups that you have spent zero time with. And, you know, one guy who's notorious for doing it is the, he's like one of the editors for like the Babylon Bee or something like that. And he's always making sort of these gross statements every few months, at least I just hear about it now because I'm not on Twitter, but usually somebody will say, oh, did you hear what the guy from? Babylon B said, and it's usually pretty generalized assumptions about black people or the black church. And here's the reality, you know, this is essentially pulling from James Baldwin, but James Baldwin in an interview says, I know basically more about you than you know about me, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I've spent more mm-hmm. time around you than you spent around me. 
I've been mm-hmm. immersed into uh, white culture. My neighbors are white, right? My, my fellow church members are white. My coworkers are white. I know more about you than you know about my culture yet. And still you feel way more free to talk about what it's like to be me than I have ever felt to talk about what it's like to be you. And I think just recently I had this realization that there is this sort of disconnect that stares that, you know, white people might use media or a few you know, relationships that they have with minorities. Um, and usually if, even if those relationships are positive, I found that oftentimes they look at those individuals if, if, as the, the exceptional ones, right? Uh, you're different. Mm-hmm. I, I literally had somebody in college tell me, Philip, you're not really black. You're not, you're not, you're not really black. You know, like other black people. And these are memories that stick with me is when these individuals say these sort of things uh, about you because like, explain to me, what does it mean to be black? Like, like what are, what is black? So as I'm talking, as I'm, as we're talking about like sensitivities and understanding, I think that they treated him maybe as if he was exceptional or as if simply, oh, look, you put Malcolm in a stable home in a stable environment and look what you get. He was a mascot, not a mascot for black people. He was a mascot for their efforts and their, like, look what we can do. Look how we can transform somebody because those are just Negroes. That's just the way Negroes are, right? Look, when we, you put one in a white family in our house, look how we can reform him. Look how we can change him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, man, like as I'm thinking about his experience right here, you know, I grew up around a lot of white folks and went to mostly white schools growing up. And I have this memory from, I think it was middle, yeah, middle school where essentially, you know, I, I a lot of the friends I hung out around were white guys. And I remember we were, I, w- I would sit with them at lunch, but I never felt totally in the loop. And it was probably a mixture because, you know, I was black. I was one of the only black kids, but also, you know, I was just like, like a nerd, you know? And so, but part of it was like, man, I, w- I want to fit in. Like, I want to be a part of this crew. And I remember we were walking out of the cafeteria and going to our next class. We might've been going to our lockers. And I think I like, there's a leader of the group, like the most popular guy there. And I, s- I said something or did something that was just playful. It was just trying to be funny. And I remember he said, uh, Cyril, you're such a That was the first time I wow. really was just like that casually called an you know. And so it, I think I said something because I was in shock and I was just like, I can't remember what, even what I did. I might have said, haha, whatever, bro, and like pushed him or something like that. But mm-hmm. afterwards, I was like, bro, that dude really just said that. Yeah. Like, what should I have done in that moment? Yeah, you're not ready for it. It's just literally like heart starts, like fight or flight response. And in that moment, you- either I'm going to punch him and get in trouble. Or I'm going to like just try to laugh it off because I'm processing internally like what the heck just happened. Exactly. So I'm sitting there like, but what's crazy is he had an idea of what black people were like. And in his head, I was fitting the stereotype. And it was just like, just a matter of fact. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so just this, these experiences remind me of that. But yeah, man. So it's just, it has me thinking about. Like, because now it's, you know, politically incorrect to, to talk in those ways. But I wonder how much that just happens around us. Mm-hmm. Um, but people just aren't bold enough to say it. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure the word still gets used amongst like-minded people. As we're wrapping up here, what do you think 
Like, what does the Bible say about this narrative? What does the Bible say about this idea that Black people are less than, that that they have a lower level of sensitivity, intellect, and understanding? Yeah, I mean, the scriptures talk about how humanity is full of their creation, glory, and honor. They're made in the image of God. That means we're meant to be like God. As God said, let us create them in our image after our likeness. And so we reflect who God is in our intellect, our sensitivity, our emotions, and our understanding. And so the scriptures rebuke this kind of posture. Mm. And also the scriptures give us hope in, in, in the midst of this. And we see all throughout the New Testament is dealing with this very issue. Like, how do you bring people who have differing views towards each other that are condescending towards each other who are looking at each other as if oh this person is of lesser sensitivity or understanding or whatever it might be you see it along the lines of jew and greek you know they talk about barbarian greek and barbarian um men and women all all different types of nationalities How, how do we unify and the gospel calls us to to repent because the kingdom of god is at hand it tells us that jesus is king and if we bow the knee to King Jesus, we are forgiven of our offenses against the crown. We, we are forgiven. We are accepted. But also we are called to the costly, sacrificial path of repentance, which looks like moving towards one another in unity and love. And I'm honestly like in some ways, I'm like Malcolm in in, in some sense, like most days I'm cynical about how people are responding to the gospel in 2022. Like, I I think there's a lot of amazing things the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. There's a lot of beautiful ways that God is working unity in the church, but I think we have a long way to go. And I think that it's going to be future generations that really see healing and like deep transformation in this area in ways that bring visible change in how the church operates and how we engage with each other in public spaces and such. So I'm hopeful. I'm pessimistic and hopeful at the same time. You know, I guess I'm a Malcolm with gospel hope. What about you? Yeah, I don't necessarily struggle with long-term eternal cynicism. I think I'm, I think people can change. I think the gospel is powerful enough to change. Mm -hmm. Um, What I am deeply concerned about is the passivity as if people are going to change just through osmosis. Uh, It's not just going to happen. We're going to have to really have some hard conversations. And I think for so long, the conversations have been so centered around race. And I know that sounds a bit ironic because we're having a podcast called (laughs) Make It Plain about Malcolm X. But if you actually listen to the podcast, you know that we try to go deeper than racism because I think that racism is simply the fruit of a lot of more universal sins like hypocrisy, a love for this world. You know, I think that when you look at the church culture, it was never really prophetic as a whole, especially those parts of the church that are considered more conservative when it came to the issue of Jim Crow segregation and racism. What happened is the ties of the culture change and the church, quietly went along with it, even though that there were many that still disagreed with it and that practiced it, they, they could not do it lawfully. And so it, it took some of the, it, it took, it, it eliminated some of the prevalence of it, it kind of went into hiding. And, and what's funny my, is that know. I feel like the culture shifted, the white evangelical church largely shifted along with the culture. 
and the culture largely shifted along with the black evangelical church. Like the prophetic resistance of the black church was what shifted the culture. Mm -hmm. And then the white folks are responding to the shift in culture. Mm -hmm. And like you said, and some of them in change, but a lot in hiding and not wanting to be perceived a certain way. So it's just, yeah. it's just funny how yeah, when we say so, the church, we're talking about two right. different strains. Yeah. Right. And but I still think that for the most part that you're right, it was a it was the prophetic voice of the black church that caused the shift in the culture. But the culture secularized that shift. White evangelicals, I won't say followed, but many of them just knew that they couldn't fight it, that they had lost that battle. Right. Mm. And so they went along with it. But what I think happens is that usually anytime that the culture is the one who is leading. Because I, I don't think that, I think the black church led prophetically, but the reality is that um, some group of white people, right, have to get on board in yep. order for that change yep. to actually occur. And unfortunately, it was a very much non-Christian, right, group that got on board, moved things along, but that movement never really grew into something deeper. It was really shallow. What you see is a reflection of a secularized shift and mm -hmm. which is also shallow. Yeah. Um, it's so we don't, you can come to our church, right? You can live in our neighborhoods, but you know, we're not going to change anything when you come to our church. We're not mm -hmm. going to, and we might move if too many of you move into our neighborhood. Like there's, right. there's this reality <laughs> that, that I still see um, you as less than, I still see you as a pet. And the, the crazy part about it is that none of those things are rooted in biblical, they're actually also pulling that, their view of you from the culture, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not birthed out of Bible, that's birthed out of culture. So the culture is like all, if you think about it, it, it gets a little complex. This is why I like frameworks and diagrams and all that. But if mm -hmm. you think about it, like the culture in the world is very much present in the minds of the church. And after Paul breaks down the law and lays out the gospel, when he gets to the practice in Romans, he says, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. And our and, and the church's mentality when it comes to, th there was never really transformation. We just conformed. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of ways that, that we, in some ways, kept doing the, the same things that we had always been doing, but we conformed to the patterns of this world also in a lot of ways in our minds, we're never really changing. And, and that's my concern as I look out on the church is that we're still not having the right conversations and we're still letting things, we're still letting sin live among us. And if you look at it, it's, here's the crazy part about it. When you let sin do its thing, sin will eventually begin to turn on you. Um, and yeah. so all of power stuff that is happening, the abuse that's happening to the kids, that stuff was birthed out of a culture that protected people in power. Uh, mm. And now other marginalized groups, whether it's women, whether it's children, uh, whoever, and whether they're white or whether they're black, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. They're all, we're all being affected by the same roots of the sin. That's why we can talk about racism, but we can't stay at racism. That's it. That's good. That's good. Thanks for tuning in to Make It Plain. For more resources related to Malcolm X, please visit our website, makeitplain.co, where you can subscribe to the show at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Radio Public, Google, or via RSS, and never miss a show. Uh, while you're at it, if you found value in this show, 
you'd appreciate a rating on Apple and Spotify. Again, our goal is 300 ratings on Apple Podcasts. You can also share this podcast if you found it to be helpful or enlightening. Please share it with a friend. I'm Philip Holmes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.